So over 12 weeks, we're going through the story of the Bible. We're answering the question, what is the Bible about? That is, is it a bunch of just kind of stories and moral hero stories, and we're supposed to pull from those and have some sort of morality shaped around these examples, or is it one story with many themes? Last week, uh, we did the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Before that, we did Luke 24, where Jesus walks on the side of the road and says, the Bible is about me. And now we come to Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have this account, you know, the creation is good. God is enjoying the creation. He's with himself in creation. He's delighting in himself. He's singing. The creation is singing. Creation singing to him. Humans are made. They're declared very good. The creation is under their control. They're, the creation is telling humans that, they are, that the creation is good. It's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's perfect. But we know from experience, Genesis 1 and 2 is not our experience. And so... We ask questions like, why do bad things happen? You know, 20 plus years ago, I don't have the exact date on this because I used this illustration almost 20 years ago. So before that, uh, a former president of the Norwegian Academy of Science with, with historians from multiple countries calculated that since 3600 BC, the world has only known 292 years of peace. That's 0.05% of human history. During this period, there have been 14,351 wars, that was 20 years ago, so it's up more now, in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. The amount of property destroyed would pay for a golden belt around the entire world that, was nine, that would be 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. Since 650 BC, there have been 1,656 arms races only of which 16 have not ended in war. Those 16 all ended in economic collapse of the countries involved. So something's not right. And so we ask the usual questions. Why is there disease? Why is there cancer? Why is there abuse? Why is there slavery? And we don't just ask the external questions. We ask the internal questions. Why am I like this? I mean, maybe you don't, but I do. My family does. Why do I do bad things? Why do I hate this person? Why can't I control myself? Why am I an addict to entertainment, food, drugs, alcohol, whatever? And Genesis 3 is the story of why the world is not well. You know, at the end of the 19th century, there was a lot of optimism about the world. World War I hadn't happened yet. And into the 20th century, we had the most bloodiest century in history, two world wars and a holocaust. Now, some people are absolutely puzzled by what goes on in the world. I, I was listening to someone else talk about Beatrice Webb. Beatrice Webb is the founder of the uh, social system in the British, in British, British welfare system. See how well I got that right. She keeps a diary, and in 1925, she writes this. In my diary in 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. This is the British welfare system. Now, 35 year, years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed and wealth and power, and how mere social machinery will never change it. We have to ask better questions about human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been to any avail, and unless we curb these bad impulses, how will we have a better social institu institution? I remember years ago, my seminary library did an audit of the books in their library. Guess what? 
a lot of books had been stolen in the seminary library. And so they installed the anti-theft devices and everyone's uh, upset. And I remember being told the president saying, why are we surprised? We believe in sin. Some people find it horrifying to talk about sin. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist who hates Christians, complaining about early Christians, writes this. They could have devoted pages to their sermons to extolling stars splashed across the sky or mountains or green forests or seas or choruses. And these are occasionally mentioned, but the Christian focus is overwhelmingly on sin, 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 sin. What a nasty little preoccupation they have. I mean, the Bible uh, talks about sin in many ways. And you know, Dawkins would probably be kind of pleased with the American church in general. Yes, there are churches, you've been to these churches, right, where they talk about sin like a hundred times and in the end they go, oh yeah, Jesus. But for the most part, churches don't talk about sin. They talk about it in therapeutic language, especially in the term of brokenness. That is, I'm broken, something's not right, and it's hurting me. So it's about me. It's about my brokenness. It's about my uh, self-help and trying to, trying to get out of it. Now, the Bible talks about sin in many ways, falling short of a standard, falling short of the glory of God, failure to love God. And, you know, all of us, I think, would say, boy, sin, you could probably define it, define it really easily. And then the more you think about it, you go, well, that doesn't really capture it, and that doesn't really capture it, and that doesn't really capture it. So how do we go from a good creation in Genesis 1 and 2 to what we experience today. Genesis 3 tells the story. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'm not here to convince you Genesis 3 really happened, whether it's legend or myth or historically true. I'm just saying that this story makes sense of the world around you. So, three parts, a lie, man's solutions, God's solutions. That's pretty simple. Here's the lie, verse 1 through 6, and we'll just take this in steps. I'll just do verse 1. The serpent says, did God really say? Now, we're not told, every, everyone has lots of questions. Uh, where is the serpent from? We don't know. How did he get into the garden? We don't know. The author of Genesis doesn't seem to care either because he doesn't tell us. It's not the question he's trying to answer. We're not even told why Eve is surprised a snake is talking to her. That's weird. Now, there are other places that give hints that this serpent is probably Satan. In Revelation 12, the devil is called that ancient serpent. So, okay, this is probably Satan. What's mistake number one? Mistake number one is she's talking to the serpent. Have you ever gotten a phone call from someone trying to sell you something, and they are just trying to keep you on the phone until you give in? Like, you know in your heart, get off the phone get off the phone, get off the phone. But you just don't, and they just keep talking. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like your automobile, you know, warranty is over again for the third time, and you're signed up for 24 months, a $4.99, and you're giving your credit card. You don't even know if it's real or not. Why? They just need you to keep talking to them until they convince you. That's what Eve's, Eve's problem is. Problem one is she doesn't have to talk. It's a choice, and so she engages. Now, the serpent is craftier than other creatures. Here's the first difference in the Christian faith than, uh, from other religions. This is not a God versus a God. This is not good God, bad God. This is God and a creature. That is, God is not going to lose to something he created. It's not a fair fight. 
and the serpent hit, now gets to the heart of the question in a very low-key way, he invites Eve to sit in judgment of God. When Satan says, did God really say, the serpent is not looking for facts. He's not like, I'm not, I don't know exactly uh, what, what God said. He's saying, can you believe that God said that? I mean, have you ever been in a conversation and you say the words, can you believe so-and-so said that? You're not actually saying, asking them to say, yeah, I, I heard it too. You're asking them to agree with you about the intention of what's being said. And so the serpent says to Eve, can you believe God really said that? He is inviting Eve to say, I have the ability to decide what is good and bad. I have the ability to decide what is good and evil and stand in judgment of God. To agree with the serpent in this story is to be the ultimate decider of good and bad. Is essentially to put yourself as an adversary to God. And that's what happens. The serpent sows doubt. Eve speaks now, verse 2 and 3. Does she know what's even happening? I doubt it. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree in the gardens, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, there's something to underline here. Eve is correct in her response to the serpent, except for one thing. You shall not touch it. Here we have the first problem. She is creating a rule beyond what God has said. Essentially, the first man-made religion. I have these rules that God has laid down, and then I have my rules on top of it. And that is the rule that's true. So you're essentially creating some religious rules. And that's, that's essentially the problem in the New Testament. You've got the Pharisees who believe in the law, and then they create laws around the law so that no one breaks the law. In the first century, it's called fencing the law. They're fencing it. They're trying to build a fence around it because we don't want to break it. Because we don't want to break it, we're going to exaggerate what it says so that we can puff ourselves up and honor God more. So Eve actually begins to play the part of the snake by exaggerating what God has said. She's making stuff up. God didn't say that. It sounds right, though. He told us not to touch it. Now comes the blatant lie. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the lie? The lie is eating the fruit will not lead to death. Now, you may have seen pictures of Eve holding an apple. We're not told. But art seems to tell us that it's an apple, so who cares? Is it an apple? I love apples, so don't give apples a bad name. Pick something else, like a plum. <laughs> what's going on here? In this brief interchange, we see the first doctrine ever denied in scripture. What's the doctrine? It's the doctrine of judgment. And honestly, in my experience, I think in human experience, when you deny that doctrine, everything else kind of falls. There are no consequences. Disobedience doesn't matter. There's not a consequence to doing that. And worse, the serpent implies God is actually hiding something from you, Eve. The half-truth is that we will be like God, and what this essentially means is Eve is now going to be like God in the sense that she gets to decide what is good and what is bad. 
part of that's true in one sense that God is hiding something from her. God is hiding the experience of sin. He is. But what's false? That we know what is good and bad. And so here's the moment we've all been waiting for. Here's the main event. If she's listening to servant, she is saying, I know what is good. I know what is evil. She is in essence saying, I'm independent of God. And the serpent is portraying God essentially as a cosmic killjoy. This is not an argument against uh, intellectually believing in God. This is an argument that God is an abuser. This is an argument that he's trying to keep you down. This is an argument he's trying to keep you under his thumb. I mean, how many people have you met with that their real issue is intellectual? Like they, they take a philosophy class and they go, you know what? It's true. It's all wrong. I'm an atheist. Atheism is held by a small group of people and it, it's held sincerely for a variety of reasons. But primarily, when people decide, I don't want to believe that anymore, it's not some intellectual uh, don't believe in God. It's, did God really say, is that really good for me? I mean, Satan's lie is you can't trust him. He doesn't love you. He is an abuser. He is going to ruin your life. And this is the essence of sin right at the front end. Sin is not trusting God when he says something is good. What's temptation at its core? God says, hey, don't sleep with that person if you're not married to them. And what do we say back? What's the temptation? Can I really trust God and what he says is good for me? God says, don't be anxious. And we say, well, I want to be anxious. What is the temptation? Do I not believe that what God says is good for me? Kids, you have a brother and sister. You have your brother and sister. They seem like an obstacle to your joy. And here comes God saying, love your neighbor. And you say in your head, did God really say, love my brother, love my sister? What is underneath every temptation? Can I trust God to tell me what is good? Can I trust God to tell me what is beautiful, what is best? Atheism is not the threat. Spiritual mumbo-jumbo with, now I'm spiritual but not religious, with an undefined ethics is the threat. Many of you have had kids painfully walk away from the faith. And for most of you, you know it's not intellectual. For most of them, it's, can I really trust that what God says is good for my body is actually good for me? It's not intellectual. It's, did God truly say? Did God truly say? Now, I have a question. Why didn't God stop them? Like, show up right in this moment. Like, God's aware of the conversation he knows it's happening. Certainly, he's watching the whole thing. What if Eve calls out, the story goes like this, and then Eve called out to God, and he said, she said, God, what is he talking about? What is this thing you're hiding from me? What is this thing that I'm going to have if I eat this tree? And he goes, you know what I'm going to tell you? 
uh, sin and judgment and death and suffering will mar your existence forever and ever and ever. Why didn't he do that? I am convinced that he didn't do that because we would be acting out of self-interest in making that decision. We would be deciding, well, if that hurts, I'm not going to do it. And what God is asking them is, will you love me and trust me, or will you trust yourself? That's the essence of Genesis 3. Am I God, or do you want to be God? Do you love me, and I get to decide what is good, or do you want to be God and love yourself and decide what is to be good? And the snake convinces Eve to act in her own self-interest, and it destroys her. I want you to notice one more thing before we go on. Verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Adam is there the entire time. And he says nothing. He doesn't help her. He doesn't refuse the fruit. His silence is the complicity. Here you have the serpent being crafty. You have Eve being deceived. And you have Adam abdicating. Now you can preach a sermon here. We have the ultimate example of what no man should be. Silent. Just letting things happen. And the application is, if this was its own sermon, which it's not, but here's the application anyway. Women, if you're dating a man and he stays silent and he abdicates his role as leader and protector, especially in spiritual life, run. If you find yourself dragging him along spiritually, I mean, how many marriages, this is essentially the issue the wife waiting for their husband to open their mouth about anything. That's the sin of Adam. That's what men are prone to. Silence, abdication, failure to lead, failure, failure to protect. You know your marriage is in trouble if the wife is just looking for the husband to open their mouth about Jesus. Are, are we going to go to church? The fact that she even has to ask you tells you there's the problem. As a result, broken fellowship with God, Adam and Eve lose their intimate connection with themselves and with God. They're alienated. They're, they're blaming each other. You guys laughed as the scripture was read. They're defensive. The relationship is defined now by domination. They're alienated to the creation, themselves, each other. So what now? Well, here's our solution. What is the primary solution, point two, what is, to now the fall? Sin enters the world. How are you going to deal with the alienation? There's three responses. We hide from each other, we hide from God, and we make excuses. You guys laughed at the make, make excuses one because it, like, it sounds like us. Here's the hiding. L listen to the illusions of sight in, in these passages. Verse 6, and here's underlining words. When the woman saw, so you can underline that, the fruit of the tree was good and food for food and pleasing to the eye. Okay, so something with sight. Verse 7, then the eyes of them were opened. Again, sight. Verse 8, then the man and wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, and they hid from the Lord in the trees. What is that? They think God would be unable to see them. They hid. You can underline hide. Verse 9 and 10, but the Lord God called out the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
The solution to the problem is ultimately expressed in that we manage our guilt by protecting ourselves from another's gaze. We manage our guilt, we manage our shame by protecting ourselves from another's gaze. We don't want to be exposed to the gaze of God and to the gaze of another. And so we hide. So first they hide from each other. They sow fig leaves. Uh, Whoop-de-doo. I mean, nakedness is what? It's vulnerability. It's being open. They were naked and unashamed. Genesis 1 and 2, they're in complete uh, communion with one another. They're in communion with God. They are totally known. That's the point. That is, they never tried to control the information about themselves that others could see. They didn't need to. There was nothing to hide. It was the most authentic relationship you could ever have because there was no sin in the relationship. One way to look at it, another person has said, that, said this, is that Adam and Eve did not believe they could be loved if they were seen for who they truly were. That's the essence of the fall, the, 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 our solution. They believed they could not be loved if someone saw them for who they truly were. Now, do I need to convince you of that? In life, Genesis 3 is teaching that at your core, you try to cover your nakedness as you try to decide what is good and evil for yourself. I mean, we see this even in the most mundane things. I mean, why are we doing this? Because guilt and shame push us down and into this kind of fear that someone might actually know us. I mean, think of something as simple as taking a picture as a group. Here comes the time for the picture. You've paid for it. What do you do in the weeks up to that? I'm like, we're not going to eat for the next week. I need to look my best. I'm going to do myself in a certain way, just like this, in a certain way. And I'm going to place people in front of me because I don't want people to see me as I am. What is that? That is fig leaves. Think of social media. You're curating a, a presence online that people can see. You're controlling the information flow. This picture, mm, not quite right. This picture, no, this angle, no, this angle. You take 100 pictures, you pick one. That's your life. It's a curated life. Let's talk about dating. Why not? Let's say a guy really wants some gal to like them, and every once in a while this happens in this room, and the guy has enough courage not to text her, not to text her, not to text her, but to actually talk to her, and she says, yes, let's go out. What happens now? The guy gets dressed for the first time in months. He's no longer a slob. You know this is true. He needs to put on this, you know, I'm, I need to be disciplined, and it goes well. Now she wants to come over. Oh, my gosh, I got to clean the house. He cleans the house. The bathroom has been cleaned for the first time in a month. You know this is true. And then you decide, and this is what I did, you know what? I'm going to cook. I'm not going to say this happened, but and I'm not going to do ramen noodles. I'm going to do spaghetti because that can't be that hard. And you overdo the spaghetti, and it bloop, right into the thing. And you're caught. You can barely do toast. You know what I'm talking about. Because the longer the relationship glows, the dirtier the bathroom gets. The socks get left out. What are you doing? Fig leaves. You're controlling the information. That person can't possibly love me for who I am and all my ridiculousness. 
fig leaves. Women who are married. Your mother-in-law's coming over from out of town. What are you doing? You're cleaning that house. And if your husband messes that house up, he's cleaning it, but you're coming behind him and cleaning it again. (laughs) And your kids who you homeschool, they better get the alphabet right. And if they don't, God forbid, the wrath of mom, who obviously isn't a good teacher, if they go A, B, C, Q, R, X. What is that? That is fig leaves controlling the information flow. You're afraid that that person will not love you for who you are. You do it in church, control the information. I mean, listen, to be part of a church that loves people for who they are, I mean, that's special. You don't have to pretend. That's special. You do it with religion, making rules. Don't you see? We hide from people. People do this from the community of Christ. I mean, even in churches, people disappear. What are they doing? They don't want to be known. They want to hide. They're making fig leaves. Let's continue. Verse 8. The man and the wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden, and they hid from the Lord God. Hilarious, right? Here comes God. They hear the sound. And, you know, God walking is is like a phrase for enjoying fellowship. Like we talk about walking with God. When you say someone walks with God, what does that mean? They really know the Lord. When he says he's walking in the garden, he's saying, I'm coming to enjoy fellowship with you. So here's the scene. God comes into the garden to enjoy fellowship. And Adam and Eve go, look, there's some trees. Let's go. And they're running to the trees. And God goes, where are you? He goes, I'm in the trees. I'm I'm naked. I got some fig leaves on. What is God going to do? Well, he starts by asking questions, and I think this is super instructive. Here are the questions. Verse 9, where are you? Verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I've commanded you not to eat? Verse 13, what have you done? What is God doing here? It seems that what Genesis 3 is teaching us is that our natural inclination is to hide, and God will not allow us to do that. Our natural inclination is fig leaves, hit the trees, And God says, where are you now? Uh, What are they feeling? You know, they're feeling shame, right? Shame doesn't exist where there is no sin. And on the other hand, shame is good. Shame is the right response. We, We know this intuitively. Have you no shame, we say? They seem to be responding in the right way. Now, do you think as God walks into the uh, trees here, he's looking for information like he's lost Adam? The God who's just literally been stars, planets, uh, black holes, microorganisms, every single animal, trees, plants, ocean, mountains. Where's Adam go? Huh, I lost him. Do you think that's what this is? This is not what this is. He knows where he is. He's drawing him out. God's walking into the garden, not to destroy the garden, but to rescue Adam and Eve. He's coming to them as a counselor. I mean, for you who've been to therapists, you know what a good therapist counselor is, right? It's someone who doesn't tell you what's wrong. It's someone who asks you the questions so that you can tell them what they already know. That's what God is after. The essential start of a relationship with God is you telling God what he already knows about you. 
That's what he wants. And so he locates Adam and Eve in order to draw them out. Question one, God wants them to admit they're in the bushes because they're naked. So Adam goes, I'm naked and afraid. And at this point, God should be like, Adam, you've always been naked. But he wants Adam to say, this is why I feel naked. This is why I feel like I'm hiding. God wants Adam to admit he cannot stand the gaze of another. Now, I'm going to quote a French atheist again for the second week in a row, Jean-Paul Sartre. He has this great little story in a book titled The Gaze. He writes of a scene of a park. And in the park, he's by himself. The flowers have meaning because he's giving them meaning. And the the lawn has meaning because he's giving them meaning. And the trees have meanings. And he, he can just walk across and he can enjoy it. And then another person emerges. And he writes this. I feel his look, his beady stare. I feel him defining me, judging me. Suddenly, I'm no longer the subjectivity in the park. Something in the park is always escaping me, namely the meaning that things now have for this person. They will have meaning for him, and he will give them meaning, and he'll give meaning to me. And he concludes, but if I'm the character in his story, not he and mine, then my freedom is limited, and I become his slave. Do you see what he's making the point here? The point is this. When we feel like we are under someone else's gaze, we change. Listen, have you ever changed the way you do things when someone else sees you? Married couples, when you're at your worst and you're saying things to each other, you know you shouldn't say, if someone walked into that room the moment that's happening, what would you feel? Shame. I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth. Kids, teacher walks into the room. What do you do? You, you see things. You, you, how many of you have closed the computer intuitively the minute someone walks behind you? What are you doing? You can't handle the gaze of a human being. Even for me, I'll get in a conversation with someone. They'll say, after 10 minutes, they'll go, well, what do you do? Like, I'm a pastor. What, come again? I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. What are they doing? Fig leaves. They're hiding. They're ashamed. Here's the uncomfortable thing. There's always an unseen seer. Think of how much you change just when a human being sees you. And yet scripture says, God is not mocked. He sees all things. He sees you. That's scary and comforting. Adam and Eve do the opposite of what they should do with shame. They run and they hide. They don't know what to do with their condemnation. And so they start making excuses. So they've hidden, they've hidden from themselves, they've hidden from God, and then you heard it. The man said, the woman you put me here with, and then he turns to Eve, and Eve says, the snake, what is sin? Sin is I'm justifying myself and raising myself up at the expense of another person. Children in this room, how many times have your parents caught you do something and the first words out of your mouth is the name of your brother and sister? What are you doing? You're justifying your actions. When you have mud caked on you and you feel guilt, you have to blame somebody. You blame the church, you blame your family, you blame your friends, you blame your spouse, you blame your kids. And so God comes into that and does he blow everything up? He does not. 
He curses the snake, verse 14. He doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He makes their life uh, hard so that he will trust him. So there's our solution, right? Like our solution, hide, hide, blame. God's solution now, verse 8. So the first thing God does is seek us. We heard that one. It's like, it was always so hilarious. Like, he found, like we found him, ha ha. We didn't find him. You know, have you ever played uh, hide and seek with your kids and you have to find your kids in order so that they'll find you? That's what this is. My kids are coming, oh, I found you, Dad. I'm like, no, you did not find me. I've been here the whole time. So that's one. Two, God says, I will send someone to crush the serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The image is, this is what Adam should have done. The snake should have come. Adam should have seen it. Adam should have crushed it. That's not what happened. Adam stood by. The snake's going to bite this person in the heel, this poisonous bite, either significantly wound or kill the person. This is not like a peaceful thing. This is enmity, strike, crush. Now, who is that? Well, it's a seed of Eve. At first, it's Seth. And then it's Abraham. He gets promised a seed, an offspring. Then it becomes God's people, and they're fighting. Christians have interpreted this as Mary. Others have said it's the fight between Satan and humanity. Others said it's the fight between Satan and the church. But ultimately, who is this? You know, if you've seen the Passion movie, here comes the snake into the garden as Jesus is praying. And this is not what happened, but it's a great image. And what does Jesus do in that movie? He crushes the snake. And what does the snake do? He kills Jesus. He bites his heel. It gets expanded to us in the New Testament and then to Romans, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. So not only does Jesus crush Satan, but we crush Satan until he's ultimately destroyed in Revelation. Now, Adam responds to this promise in verse 20 in faith. Now, Tim Troughton, another pastor here, pointed this out to me. I've never seen this before. Notice that up until this point, the woman doesn't have a name. Like, I keep calling her Eve. Her name's not Eve. Her name is woman. And now... There's a promise of a child, and Adam renames her life. He doesn't know it's going to happen. He can't see that it's going to happen. There's never been another child before. And, God, and Adam in this moment says, I trust you, God, and I trust your promises. And to show you I trust you, my wife's name is now Eve. So th through the woman, death is brought into the world, and through the woman, death is undone in life. It's beautiful. God seeks, God crushes Satan's, and the last thing, he covers them. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. So God says, give me the fig leaves, those won't work. Trust me. And here's the, here's the story of the Bible now. Man tries to cover his own failing. God covers man. And the clothes which God gives Adam and Eve are from the skin of an animal, which means God killed an animal to cover Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And that is the foreshadowing of how sin is dealt with through the death of another. You get covering throughout Scripture. Ezekiel 16 is the famous one. I, I won't read it except to say that, you know, God passes by this baby who's just been born and it's out crying and it's screaming and then it is born. And then it says, I passed by and I looked at you and I covered you and your naked body, and you became mine. Covering. It comes into 
the New Testament, famously in Romans 4, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Who is he talking about? He's talking about knowing Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the animal that is slain in order to cover Adam and Eve. So what are the steps to undoing the lie? It's telling back to God what God already knows. He already knows. You struggling? He already knows. Don't need to hide. He already knows. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that you're not going to be loved because he knows. Pascal once said, it's a, it's a wretched thing to know you're a wretch, but it's a glorious thing knowing you're wretched. Admitting what you are, step one. Step two, stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. Stop drifting. It's the church's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my friend's fault. It's my wife's fault. No, it's not. And three, let God cover your skin, your sin. The sacrificial death of Christ. The scars on Jesus' body prove that shame is real. And the scars on Jesus' body prove that you don't need to hide, that he is going to love you because he knows who you are. That's the gospel. Shame isn't forever. It's not. You don't need to hide. Turn to God who wipes out guilt and shame and your nakedness. Let's pray. Lord, may everyone's uh, nakedness be covered in the blood of Christ in this room. And may no, no one in this room ever feel so much shame that they couldn't ever feel loved even in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. That prayer wasn't long enough for you to get up here. Okay, let's uh, stand. Let's stand and pray. Let's stand and sing. <laughs> let's be close.